Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. My guest today is Sara Nazarzadeh. Sara is a social psychologist who sees both couples and individuals in her Los Angeles practice. She specializes in sexuality, relationships, and intercultural proficiency. At the heart of her work is compassion and how connection leads us to meaningful and fulfilling relationships. Today, Sara and I talked about what happens when you're at the end of a relationship or marriage. And she shared the key ingredients for what makes one thrive. We also talked about how to move through the end of the year and practical steps for evaluating what to take or leave behind. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Sara Nazarzadeh. It's so lovely to be talking to you today. How are you doing? Likewise. Thank you for having me. When the Goop team and I were thinking about folks we wanted to talk to and topics we wanted to explore, you know, one of them that was really near to my heart is the topic of uncoupling, the topic of ending a relationship, whether it's a long-term relationship or a marriage especially as someone who has gone through a divorce and learned so much from that process and has felt very fortunate to still be extremely close with my ex-husband. I know how much work that required for us to get to the point that we are now where there is, we are no longer lovers, but we're also not friends. We're something a little bit more amoeba-like. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere but stretching between those two environments and you know I do owe you know a lot of gratitude to Gwyneth for 
kind of ushering in this larger conversation around uncoupling. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about how you found yourself in this work. First of all, I'm so proud of you because it is hard work, the uncoupling. And if I may say something, you know, you mentioned that JP offered this uncoupling. What she did, I think, is to offer a language around something that was so stigmatized. Because when we talk about divorce, when we talk about separation, it has such negative connotation. But when you say uncoupling, you immediately have a sense of agency. That something that, you know, an action, this is like, I have agency in this. So I think the language of this whole thing matters a lot. I was always fascinated with relationships, always just growing up, how I grew up. My parents, both of them were social scientists. And they had this ritual that after dinner, they would get together for tea, you know, Persian tea. <laughs> so as they were sipping on their tea, they were having conversation about their day. This happened, such and such happened. You know, they talk about research, they talk about their clients, the communities they're served and, you know, they've been a part of. And we grew up with those stories as if uh, they were imprinted in our subliminal context, you know, of the mind. And as I was growing up, a lot of relationships around me, romantic or otherwise, fell apart. A lot of them were filled with paradoxes. Then growing up in the Middle East, you know, I was very on introduced to the concept of perceived conflict, real conflict, how to manage that, how to survive, how to thrive. So these are very early on introduced into my life. Then it became my absolute obsession in life to make sure that I decode world peace, one relationship at a time. So that was the umbrella for me. Then I was thinking, okay, so surviving is not the way to to be. This is only one life that we're living, you know, as humans, all of that. How can we thrive? Then that became another obsession for me to find out who is thriving. And anywhere that I could find people, even for the cab drivers, like, are you in a relationship? Are you happy? How do like why, why do you think you're happy? And this is like me being 11. This is like so ridiculously, like I was so, so curious about it. So all of this came together as I grew older. I went to study relational sciences and um, psychosexual therapy because also sex is a very intimate connection that we have with somebody, including ourselves, right? So all of those, put all of those together. Then I studied social psychology and policy Then I worked with the United Nations and uh, Policy Studies Institute in London. I lived in different countries. I worked across like 40 countries. Then I realized one thing. We talk a lot about relationships and relating. And often we talk about that individual aspect of it. What's in it for me? What does it mean for me? You know, for that special someone that I'm in a relationship with. But really, at the core of it is we are all craving for that one, at least one secure bonding with someone. We are wired for that, right? The person who takes the pain away, who witnesses our lives. It could be, you know, I'm not talking about necessarily romantic partnership, but that's how most of us are, you know, striving to be in a relationship. So all of those came together And over and over and over again, I found myself in this space that I want to know what are human connections and what could be done to cultivate them, to create enough intimacy, meaningful intimacy, like into me see (laughs) between, you know, two people at least, to make that a relationship. 
mm. meaning a continuous connection. I'm curious about what you qualify as a good divorce. And when I say the word divorce, I'm not only speaking to a relationship that took place and the two partners were married, just talking about how do you bring a long-term relationship to a healthful close? Okay, beautiful question. So what you just said at the beginning of our talk, our conversation, when you said, I'm in good relationship with my ex, you were also trying to label it where we're not kind of kind of lovers or, you know, like we're friends, but we're kind of in between. So I like that. That I call healthy. Actually, I was thinking what I can offer as a practical tool to your listeners. I call it bucketing, rebucketing, and pruning. For uncoupling, one of the things that uh, I suggest to people do in general, you might want to uncouple with a friend, by the way. It's not only couple them, right? So one of the things that I would kind of put under the umbrella of healthy uncoupling with anyone is for divorce, financial factors need to be handled. So that's just the legal divorce. So that's that aside. Apart from that, when a person can transform and transition from one relationship, the way that we relate to one person, to another form of relating to that person and be able to have boundaries around it, that's a healthy divorce for me. That's a healthy uncoupling for me. And that's the bucketing exercise. So basically what I ask people to do is to create literal buckets. If they don't have buckets, pots from your kitchen, just put around you. And there is a meaning around it when you don't do it only on the paper. I really want them to have something feasible, like, you know, like a physical around them. Have a bunch of post-its, label the buckets. So these people is a lover, these people, you know, these people are lovers or one lover. And then that person is in my close circle, best friend, you know, whatever. And then you are going to put the name of the people who you know in your life just on different post-its and put them in different buckets. As you go through life, you might end up changing the buckets for one person to the other, right? So you take them from this bucket, put them in this bucket. This is the bucket and rebucketing. And I actually advise people to do this every year, regardless, right? So that's one. The other one is the pruning. Sometimes you feel like some people, when you uncouple with somebody, you actually need to let them go. For their own, for your sake, just leave each other alone. Wonderful. It's like, you know, having uh, a very good meal in your life, you know, and just coming to acceptance that I'm not going to have exactly the same meal in my life again, you know, but I'm going to eat for the rest of my life. It's okay to kind of let go of that person. So I would say these are the two immediate things that I would say when you ask me about the healthy uncoupling. I always do a practice like that at the beginning of the year, not the term, not using the terms bucketing and rebucketing, but I, I make a list of like, who are the 20 people I really want to continue diving in with, spending more time with. Some of them might be old friends from a long time that have always been a priority for me, just continuing to like recommit to that priority. And then newer people who I've just met who feel like they fit in the evolution of my life that I would like to begin to 
prioritize. I want to actually go in and do it with the physicality component too, because I think when you're actually able to use your body to connect to things that are very emotional, it's, it provides a lot of coherence. And also, you know, you will get to see what sensations you experience with your body as you do that, as you're moving this person from this bucket to a closer bucket or a further bucket. How would you react? What is this conflict that you're feeling? So I think those are the ground for self-growth also for all of us. Mm. Uh, How do I deal with endings? How do I deal with any kind of shift in the relationships that I have around me? Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. How do you begin to assess if a relationship is not going well? And, and what are some of the first things that you can do to, to remedy that versus kind of turning away? Like, how do you turn towards, or would you suggest even turning towards? I actually love your question. Do you know why? Because people think that relationships fall apart over a very big event. And that could be, right? What kills relationships is that, Imagine a glass that you're flicking every day, just every day. In physics, we have, I think, actually, actual term, actual phenomenon called fatigue factor, material fatigue factor, meaning that if you flick something like a material enough time, one day you just puff, you just look at it, it just breaks down because of the multiple cracks that it has, right? What you're talking about, Erica, is that if we can catch the cracks, before they become chasms, then we can do something about relationships. And sometimes we can't, but at least it doesn't become hostile. It doesn't become like something that creates um, wounds and injuries to our souls, right? So, and I'm all about prevention as much as possible, hopefully, because by the time couples get to us, unfortunately, usually they are really genuinely, some of them ready to kill each other. So you just need to just put the fire off. The chasm is so big that, you know, it's just to make a peaceful separation rather than helping them to come together. Now, on that note, one of the things that I would like to suggest is, first of all, if there is any physical or emotional abuse, that's a very clear red sign. If there is any abuse of any other substances that will trickle down into the relationship. So, for example, if you're living with somebody, dealing with somebody who had multiple attempts of quitting something, like, for example, abusing alcohol, abusing, you know, um, drugs of any sort that trickles down into the relationship, they become violent, they become non-responsive, they become irresponsible, they put you into danger zone. These are the signs that really not to take lightly. 
And often this happens in more of the codependent relationships, meaning that usually we cover for the partner. Oh, it's okay. It's just the one time. Oh, it's okay, but I can be there for them. You know, so there's a whole discussion that we can have around that. But if you don't feel that you are really genuinely physically or emotionally safe, that's that's like a red line. Short of that, anything else, like, for example, when you feel like you lost your sense of self, I have couples who come to me and then I ask them, or individuals for that matter, I ask them, what are your hobbies? How would you identify with different identities that you have, your gender, your race, your ethnicity, your spirituality, your age, your, you know, the space in life, your business, your, you know, all of that. And they have a very hard time relating to what matters to them most because they've been into in this long relationship that they actually owned the other person's identities right so mm-hmm. those are clear signs for me that you know you need to really start the differentiation process and it might end up in complete separation or actually they become independent enough to be able to create interdependency mm-hmm. because many people think they are independent but many of them actually are self-reliant, not independent by the time they get to relationships. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between self-reliance and independence as it relates to interdependence. How do you begin to build that in a new relationship when you are flooded with limeracy, this concept of just you're so intoxicated by the other person, this desire to, to mesh feels unavoidable. So one of the things that come to my mind immediately as you're asking me is this notion of what I call submergent love. When we were growing up, regardless of where we grew up, majority of us, right? I'm not saying everybody, but majority. Two people are doing their own business in the world. They meet somehow, right? Through whatever. And then they spend time together. They share friends. They meet each other's families. They share hobbies, da 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 And then they come together and then imagine two circles, right? So they come together and then they go and get completely enmeshed with each other. We call it, we are in love. And then we lose all capacity for cognition. All cognitive ability is completely gone. So that's a form of love that we call a passionate love or mania right? Actually possessive love or mania that, you know, we can't get enough of each other. That's what you hear from people finish each other's sentence. So one plus one becomes one. You are my person. You are my better half, you know, all of that thing, soulmate, all of those. So that, that happens for many people. And that's beautiful. The problem is if you stay in that, when people stay in that, our good colleague, Dr. Helen Fisher and other colleagues actually in Netherlands, they did some research around how long this phase lasts, this phase of being crazy about each other, hormones everywhere and everything. It's usually on average two years. And then what? You can fall in love with the person that you want and wonderful, have great sex, make cute babies. And that's one of the reasons that you are actually madly in love with them usually, because they have the most differentiated genomes from you. But then that doesn't make for a long-term partnership. And that's the problem. So I would say there are a lot of socioculturally constructed myths around this whole notion of love. That submergent love is the love that you have to experience. 
I have so many clients who come to me and they've been living together. They have a wonderful life together. They have all the elements that research shows for emergent love, right? They have shared vision. They have compassion, empathy. They have trust. They have physical attraction, respect, commitment. All of those elements are there. They come to me because they don't feel the butterfly anymore. Are you sure I should move forward? Are you sure I should tie the knot? Are you sure I can do this? And then my question to them is, first of all, where did you get this notion of butterfly? And that is good for you. Because when you have a butterfly, it's a sign of anxiety, right? So we say butterfly as if it's a really cute little thing flying by. But that actually means that you touched my nervous system in a way. You triggered me in a way. It's not a very good idea to shape a long-term partnership with somebody who gives you butterfly all the time. So these are the ones that I think the more we have these conversations, debunk these myths, we can help people avoid that situation, to go into that enmeshed situation and stay there. Now, let's say we did that. We fell in love, you know, all of that, right? Now what to do? My humble suggestion is think of your relationship partnership as one plus one is three. And the third party will be the relationship. That makes it a conscious effort, everyday effort, that all of those elements that I just mentioned earlier need to be there for this fire to survive. I can give you an example. These ingredients that I'm talking about resemble log and a spark. Log on its own cannot create fire. Spark on its own cannot create fire. But when you put them together, they create the fire. If you take anyone away at any given moment, the fire dies, doesn't it? That's the love that I'm talking about. So in a way, we feel like in general public, we believe that we have to have the love, whatever that means, for the rest to follow. For emergent love to happen, the main ingredients need to be there for that love to be created and sustained. That's the main difference. I love that so much, especially this idea that love is kind of at the top of the apex. If you've ever seen Maslow's hierarchy of needs, just that triangular framework where love is really at the top. And then, you know, like you said, shared vision, empathy, respect, compassion, physical attraction are, are at the bottom, really kind of creating that, that baseline. And it's very interesting because, you know, the acculturation component is so important to really dig into primarily because we're told that we need to have the kind of earth shattering butterfly inducing chemistry and energy right at the top. And we need to continue to kind of foster that without dropping into the stuff that is more kind of foundational. And I think that's probably why 50% of marriages don't work, you know, because we don't, we don't know that there's another way to kind of navigate things. I think it's interesting too, for me as, as a gay person and dating women, where there isn't this overt biological imperative to procreate in terms of just the genomic distance that you were speaking to. In its best form, <laughs> not to say <laughs> that gays, lesbians, however one identifies, are not subject to limeracy and not sub subject to a lot of those other components that we're talking, that we're speaking to. But 
I do think in queer relationships, there is this, this emergent love, you know, paradigm or framework does seem more like where a lot of it does start sometimes, at least in my experience, because you're assessing the compatibility in a different way. I have to agree with you 100% because there are many reasons that people get attracted to one another, right? So they desire each other, attracted to each other and different gender, different sex, different relationship orientations, right? But what you're describing, Erica, as I'm hearing, is when people come together, first of all, in queer community or people who are not the quote-unquote what the majority of people are experiencing, you know, with their sexual and relational orientations, they have done a lot of identity work for themselves. So by the time that you meet another person, usually you have more ways to express your experiences, internal experiences. You are better equipped in actually describing what you are all about. And there is less possibility for you to get enmeshed in that situation. Although I'm not saying that codependency doesn't exist in those relationships. It it happens with any relationship. It could happen in any relationship, but usually uh, they're more articulate in the queer community or a transgender community because they've been through so much that just to make sense of their own dilemmas and confusions and, you know, ambiguity around how, how am I describing myself? Where do I belong? And usually they come to the table with more awareness about themselves. And I think that's the main differentiating factor for me, at least. Let's say someone's listening, they're going through a breakup and are kind of making their way to the other side of it and are thinking about dating again and, and trying to figure out how to do that in a more coherent way, in a way that acknowledges this emergent love model as opposed to the submerged model. How do you foster that in a new relationship? Or how do you bring it in if the relationship is somewhat established and it was established very much in this submerged approach? I have to tell you, Erica, sometimes when I talk about this is very interesting, you should see people's reaction, usually. Oh my God, you just shattered everything I knew about love. What are you talking about? Are you going to take that away from me? But then they know that this is going to work in the long run. So that dilemma of, I know this is good for me, but I don't want it situation, you know, because Mm. it's like that desire versus Mm -hmm. like kind of uh, that logical perspective around it Mm. that, you know, what they uh, crave. One of the things that I've done, I ask people to bring objects to show the love that they desire. And also we did an exercise around the love that you deserve. So that was actually pretty interesting for people to observe themselves. So when a person brought an object, a very cozy blanket as the love that I desire, and then they brought a very sharp and spiky rock as the love that I deserve, how do you put the two and two together? So I would say when you say cultivating all of these in a new relationship, I would say first figure those things out for yourself. Like do this exercise around love blueprint. What do you call love? You know, we use the same word, you know, I, in the languages that I'm familiar with, at least, and, and I worked across like 40 countries. Expressions of love, the language of love is very different. In some cultures, we have like 11 words for love. 
to mark the different roles and different expectations around it, right? So in English, we say love. And if you even look at a Merriam-Webster or Oxford Dictionary, we have so many different definitions of it. So no wonder the confusion, right? So this is really important for people to do that work. What is your love blueprint? What do you consider as love? I can actually give you a very simple exercise. Just think about your five senses, you know, sight and touch and, you know, all of that. If you're bodily able with all five, just think about all of those. And then imagine that growing up and also later on in your any significant relationship, what were the manifestations of love? What did people call love? What did you perceive as love? Given and you know, and receiving, giving and receiving through all of these senses. That is your blueprint, right? And then little by little from there, then you can do the legwork before you get into a relationship. So it's as if you're doing these stretches before you get to the dance floor, mm. right? So there are certain things that we don't talk about, but we observe. And many people with wonderful resources that are out there, in my opinion, they are very literate. They can lecture about love and relationship and everything. But when it comes to fluency in that language of love, they're lacking. And I think that's what they require before they start even dating. You know. So with that fluency, what I mean is, for example, you talked about compassion and empathy. When you go outside, watch the pe- person. You know, many people go on date nights or dates in general. And then they found, find themselves at the bars and eating at the restaurants and, you know, whatever. Create different experiences. Put yourself and the other person, whoever that you're dating, in different scenarios. See how they show up. Are they rude? Are they compassionate to other people? Because I have clients who tell me that, you know, he's not compassionate towards other people, but he's good to me. And three years later, sure enough, you are joining that group as well. So these are the ones that, you know, with talking, not everything could be discovered and decoded. Sometimes, you know, you just observe, just give it time, you know, and observe and put the person into different scenarios, watch movies together, see what their interpretations are. Listen to a podcast, see what are the points that highlights that struck them versus you. So these are the ones that I would say, you know, even the dating situation, the process of dating versus the content we need to pay different attention to. I want to circle back to the uncoupling component, the separation component. Once you've done the internal inventory and you know that it's time to start to make your way out of the relationship, what are some of the first steps to take outside of the financial component that we talked about for say a legal marriage, like getting those affairs in order. What do you think are some of the steps that you need to take in terms of navigating that process? I would say first find yourself. And many of us end up in relationships for multiple reasons. Ask yourself the question, are those reasons still true? Have they changed? How? Am I going out of this relationship because I want to avoid pain or I want to pursue pleasure? So these are the basic questions that I would ask myself before acting on anything, right? And then putting in place a support system would be very, very helpful. Support system who is informed, not just support system who just nod and whatever as that, that you say. Some people, 
you know, have some of those people, but also some people who are wise and who can also be your mirror. Well, you're saying this, but actually I've seen that. What do you think of that? Because biologically speaking and neurophysiologically speaking, when we are in a down state, when we have negative self-talk with ourselves about our partnership, we can't think of any positive aspects. We can't really bring up any good memories or any of that. So that's another thing that I suggest people do to, you know, think about walking out of that relationship when you're in a very good mood. If you feel like, you know, you're absent flow, sometimes there's more room for regret later. So, and I often tell people that, you know, no matter what you decide, stay or go, you will regret it at some point. You know, if you're a reflective person, you will regret it at some point. But then at least some aspects of it. It's just a matter of making the decision and what is going to help you to make peace with it. So those kind of emotional groundwork. And then the, the other aspect of it, the social support, is it safe for you to leave? You know, what do you need to do? Are you independent enough? Can you survive before thriving even? You know, financially, emotionally, relationally, socially, you know, do some people have such shared social life that when they walk away from a relationship, they have no one. So these are the ones, right, that we need to think about. I think a lot of people over the past, you know, 20 months or so since we arrived inside this pandemic have learned a lot about themselves mm -hmm. independently, interdependently, or relationally. And I've definitely seen a big uptick in relationships ending all across the board, both romantic, platonic, work. What are some of the patterns that you've seen? Or what are some of the, the patterns you've identified around these endings that are taking place kind of around this time? First of all, I have to say that some relationships actually became stronger. Some relationships ended, as you mentioned, in different forms. Some relationships got rebucketed or pruned for different reasons. So, for example, geographically, many people moved out of wherever that they lived. So then, then naturally, some of the relationships died. And some people quarantined together. They had to. They were stuck together. You know that um, Sandra Bullock's, uh, Bullock's uh, movie, The Proposal? Mm -hmm. That people, they got stuck together and then they had to make it work. And at the end, it worked. So these are the ones that, you know, I've seen. Also, I've seen people making choices. If they've been in multiple partnerships, now they had to make their choices. Who am I quarantining with? I've seen a lot that the boundaries between secrecy and privacy were blurred because people shared the spaces and more privileged people, maybe they had bigger houses. So they had, you know, uh, different experiences than people who didn't. Let's say, for example, as simple as they had to share a toilet all day long, they had to, you know, like they got to see things that they haven't before. They got to discover things about each other that they haven't um, before. Some people divorced on paper. They had to stay together because of safety, because of, you know, whatever. violence, unfortunately, violence rate went up. Mental health diseases took many different shapes and forms. Lack of resources and outlets made the person in your household the person for you for everything, which made it very difficult because the more interactions without any other outlets meant more conflict. 
and not all of us are trained in conflict management. It's very difficult <laughs> to kind of separate that. Some people had to move in with other family members. So couples lost their privacy altogether or the children came back home because you know they were homeschooling or colleges were closed and all of that. So I've seen all sorts of varieties. But most importantly, the enmeshment of the roles that at some point you were just co-parenting and at this point you are my intimate partner. You have to commiserate with me in this collective trauma that we are experiencing. You have to take care of me if I'm sick. You have to, you know, and some people lost their jobs. So a lot happened. Some people bought houses because they didn't have anywhere else to spend their money. So the house market went up, right? So many people actually invested together this year. So lots of varieties I've seen. I think it's really interesting the way that you're highlighting both the positive and negative aspects around relational dynamics in this time. Because I do think it can be easy sometimes to focus on the fact that a lot of people are uncoupling and shifting away from each other. But this, again, I love this idea of the rebucketing, that there is this ability to transmute a relational dynamic. It doesn't have to be a full separation. And like you said earlier in our conversation, this idea that when you are turning towards your partner for everything, it increases your conflict. And that is actually not a known concept for a lot of people. It makes me realize the importance and value of therapy. I couldn't articulate it in the way that you just did that this constant turning towards each other increases conflict. And so it it, it does eventually, starting off therapy doesn't always decrease conflict. There's definitely an acclimation period, but over time it, it can because the relationship needs somewhere else to go to be seen, to be held, to be witnessed, to be examined. Exactly. That witnessing of it is a big part, Erica. And also, you know, psychologically speaking, when two parties are in conflict, two, uh, you know, parties are, that's the best way I can describe it, in conflict. If you add a third will, that stabilizes the relationship for a while. And that helps them to project the issues to that third will. And then third kind of side of the triangle, we call it triangulation, actually. So it, that third part, and then they can objectify the problem. They can formulate the problem to solve it versus mm -hmm. being in the mid midst of the tension and not being able to do anything about it. I think this is such a great time at this time of year anyway, to start thinking about reorganizing our approach to, to love and to into relationships. And I'm just so excited to have this kind of like new spark. I know you said when you would sometimes take this emergent, <laughs> emergent concept to people, they would be like, you're taking away my entire narrative around love. But I think we've had so many narratives exploded and extracted over the past kind of year and a half. I think this, this, I, I think the narrative of love also deserves a reckoning. I really would love people to think about the word love. When they use it, for whom they use it, what do they mean by it, and what are the expectations written all over it? 
in any single like you know interaction and also there are so many different types of love like self-love um, altruistic love the ones that we got from greek philosophers like eros agape philatia and philia storge pragma you know practical love you know all of that so this is important why because specifically for people who would like to go to the new year want to redefine their loving relationships think about it when i say i love you between the two of us erica i come to you and then we are dating or you know we are seeing each other or we are in a long-term partnership for that matter and then i say you know what when we first got together my love for you was pragma because i thought you know you're an intelligent woman you can help me grow you can do this you can do that so pragma practical right at this, but the same token in that time, you said, I love you because maybe your love was Eros or Agape, you know? So if those meanings don't match, then our expectations don't match. And over a period of time, when we shift the type of manifestation of those loves, then we feel like, oh, then you don't love me anymore, or I don't love you anymore. But then if we know about different types of love, then we are going to have very colorful and in a way a rainbow type of love rather than just a sharp orange one kind of love that's what keeps the relationships going and you know the fire going thank you for listening to my chat with sara nazarzadeh you can find out more about her at her website sara-nazarzadeh.com thanks again for tuning in This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.